So I was in my devotions early this morning, and um, I, I've been in Jeremiah for the last uh, several days. I won't take as long in my devotions to get through Jeremiah as the men's Bible study did. Um, that was like two and a half years, I think, they were in Jeremiah. But uh, as, I was, as I was listening and reading those things, I was, I was reminded as the Lord spoke through Jeremiah to the people of, of how they had abandoned listening to and following his word and the consequences of that on them. And it's interesting because today we're, we're continuing the series that we've been in in church culture, looking back at how the church culture began and what was expected of the church culture and even walking past that into some of the churches in that moment of time that were living out the things that had been brought to them by Christ, by the apostles, through their salvation and and all of these things culminating in what they were supposed to be. And remember, we looked at Ephesus and how 30, 40 years after Paul had talked to them and, and, and communicated a, a pleasure with the way they were and what they were doing, we find John writing about them in a very different way. So we've been on this focus of church culture. What is it supposed to look like? Who are we supposed to be? We've looked at prayer. We've looked at generosity. We've looked at partnership and, and the idea of true fellowship. We've looked at togetherness and the sense of true communion that we're called to have. And in the last few weeks, we've looked at joy and we've looked at worship, not as something we do just on Sunday morning with some musicians, but how we live daily, right? And each of those things were things that the first century church, according to scripture, was continually devoting themselves to. And each week we've, we've been looking to continue to establish that commitment that we have as we're turning a page in the book that's being written about who we are as a church body, to have that same commitment, that same devotion to, to continuing to excel still more in, in our church culture, right? So that 30 years from now, if the Lord tarries, good things will be written about this church culture and how it is continuing to thrive in Jesus. Today we're going to look at what actually is first on the list. I know I've been skipping around a little bit next to, but what was actually first on the list. Let's look at the passage again, Acts 2:41. So then those who had received his word, those who had received his word were baptized And that day there were added about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. And we're going to pause there, because that's where we're going to focus today. And we know from what is written that the apostles' teachings were not simply what the apostles believed about things, right? Um, it, was, it was not what the apostles thought about all things religious. In fact, as Paul was talking to the believers at Ephesus, he reminded them in Acts 20 that he didn't shrink back from declaring to them the entire counsel or the entire purposes of God. That was the point. 
It wasn't what they thought about things, though Paul did give at times what he thought about things. He made it clear. But the apostles' teachings were those things that that found their authority, that that found in them the, the desire for people to listen, the message about Jesus, proclaimed by those who had intimate knowledge of him and relationship with him, so as to speak with authority. It's one thing to say, I know someone from a distance. It's another thing to say, I know them up close and personal. And that's what was going on in these moments of time. It was what he said, retold. It was what he did and how he lived, modeled. It was what he accomplished in suffering and and death and resurrection. It was proclaiming of what it, it meant for redemption to take place and for a man or a woman to be reconciled to God. It was the linking of all the things that had been for a couple of thousand years of history to what was taking place in that moment of time with them. And this would have been interesting, especially in Jerusalem especially in the early days of the church as it was expanding. Because as, as they were going through this, they were also people that were reviewing, like the Bereans did, they were reviewing all of the, the Old Testament things that were being talked about and kind of being looked at in a very different way than maybe they had been looking at them for generations concerning the plan of God and, and Jesus himself. There would have been undoubtedly a lot of differences of thoughts, opinions, perspectives of of how the Messiah was supposed to come on the scene, what he was supposed to do. All of these things were in that mix. And, And each of these things were being filtered through what the apostles were saying Jesus said about it. These teachings would have been vital to provide a a central focus for them to move forward. They they could not be all over the map. I mean, even even in the early days of the New Testament, we we recognize that there were three or four different divisions among the, the the religious leaders of the day. They had they had different thought processes on different things. The resurrection, uh, the you know what was going to take place, how much you had to do, how much you didn't have to do. All of these things were going on. What becomes abundantly clear is that the church and and the church culture that was being formed was to be a place where the word of God and and the teachings of Jesus were primary. And they were to be proclaimed and they were to be explained. One writer put it this way, the church could not and cannot operate on truth. It's not taught. Believers cannot function on principles they have not learned. So for the early church, they had the, the privilege of, of sitting under those who had firsthand knowledge of and, and actual physical proximity to Jesus in the flesh, hearing the very words of God. For us today, we've got the privilege that it's been written down and that we can find it and in whatever our, our educational Uh, desire is or level or simplicity of reading. I mean, you can find some versions of the Bible that are so hard to read, you have to read like four words at a time, you know, just to take it in. And then there's others that you can read and it's like a story. We've got all of those things. We, We have it on the written page. We have it on computer screens. We have it on phones. 
In certain places in the United States, you can still see it on billboards, right? The ability to see it, the ability to take it in, like no other generation before us. So how important was this to the first century church and the church culture they were building? I believe we see it in Acts 1 and 2. Because Acts 1 and 2 record a a pretty incredible experience, if you remember, and display of the power of God in a way that they had not seen. And we can sometimes get a little lost in, in focusing on the experience as the primary reason for the recording of of some of those things of Scripture. But I believe that with a little diligence, we can see something that's really quite remarkable that the experience produces. Let's look. Acts 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the upper room and they were staying there. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They prayed first. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers... So we're seeing in this moment of time in Acts, there's great unity there. They had experienced loss. They were all together, but they had, they had experienced loss in, in their group as well. And, and in that moment of time, some believed that the remedy needed to be uh, that, that uh, we add one back. We, we lost one, let's add one back. So they did some business and they replaced Judas with Matthias. And we come to Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had come... There were all, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and resting on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance." Now, I know that through the years, I have had many people try to explain to me exactly what was going on in that moment of time. I've heard all kind of theories as to what the wind was. I've heard all kind of theories as to what the tongues of fire could have been or actually were. Uh, from Moses and the burning bush scenario and stuff. I, you're right, there's all these things. And, and each one of those explanations that maybe I've heard, maybe you've heard, they, they have a reason that they're focusing on that explanation, right? But no matter how you slice it, it's simply an incredible experience that these people had the privilege to witness, right? I mean, you, you can't read that passage and think anything other than this is really overwhelming. Now, to be honest, much like us, if we would have been there, people were trying to put this in some kind of context to be able to relate to what they were witnessing. Have you ever witnessed something before and you know you saw it? And yet when you try to explain it, it doesn't, it doesn't match with what you're engaged in in trying to explain and what you saw. It's kind of like people in a tornado. 
Now, I have had the privilege to go through a tornado. Um, and uh, it was no fun at all. And it was just a mild tornado compared to the ones that hit sometimes in Oklahoma and carve a swath three miles wide and 50 miles long. But I had the experience. And this is what I learned. There, there, is, there is a perspective that the people in a house have when a tornado hits that house. And, and they see it very differently than the person who hears all the noise but lived a half mile away from where the tornado hit. And they see it differently than the people who watch the news report and see the damage that the tornado has done. And they see it differently than the person who comes in in the aftermath and helps clean up. All kind of different perspectives on the same event or same story. I remember when it did hit our house, my next door neighbor had a little bit of fun with the news media because one of his trees that he had planted just that year got split and, and it fell over. It was just, it's probably this big around. And he took that tree and he just started wrapping it, the bark around the, the, the stuff that was left. And the news cameras were over there showing the damage that had been done by the tornado and how it twisted that little tree all around there. And he and I were kind of chuckling at that. A tornado is not something like religion that has many preconceived ideas or biases though. So people had trouble explaining in that moment of time to some degree what was going on. Some of them because they sincerely couldn't comprehend it. Some of them because they had biases or maybe even ulterior motives in that moment of time as to why they were explaining. But this is kind of what they said. The, the people were speaking the mighty deeds of God is what one said in, in, in every language of the people that were gathered. Other people were asking the question as they were witnessing, what does this mean? Other people were saying they're drunk with wine. They mocked what had taken place, seemingly trying to just explain it away. But then Peter stood up and he explained and he taught from the Old Testament scriptures the context and then proclaimed the truth. And at that point, the people that were there were moved in their hearts to, to repent and follow Jesus. And they pleaded to know, what must we do, right? Everything about what was being experienced was overwhelming. And maybe that is some of the reason why so much of the focus in this particular part of Acts is an emphasis on the experience of what was taking place. But where I want us to focus is on what is recorded next. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Amazing, right? 3,000 people drawn by God through the work of the Holy Spirit in their soul immediately became followers of Jesus, making public profession of their faith. Now listen to what is recorded about what they did in the days following. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. Teaching. This is the pattern, this is the, the first thing 
that they list as this new life, this new culture that is being generated. So as, as Luke is, is recording this in Acts, he's saying, look, as, as we saw this, this is what took place. Now, as I said, I, I know that people often focus on the experience that took place in the preceding verses and, and all of the stuff that's kind of to some degree unexplainable, but it's important. The things that took place were amazing, that displayed the power of God, prophecy fulfilled, transformation available, sins forgiven. But I want us to note the very first thing that the Spirit-inspired author said that they did following their salvation. Did you see it? When the Spirit, whose presence now indwelled them, the Spirit who was now guiding them, the Spirit who was giving them new life, when that Spirit began his role in their life, the first life evidence of his presence guiding them was their devotion to the truth of the teaching of Jesus. And, and to learn and grow in their knowledge of God. Led by the apostles, they became students of the word of God and the teachings of Jesus. Now, I think it's good to note that though the experience might have been overwhelming, these new believers didn't make their experience of and with the Holy Spirit the central focus all these other things that we have been talking about related to the church culture in that moment of time and and how it was growing and what it was being developed to be, all of these things became the focus because of their experience of the power of God. These things were all made central. It seems as if the main concern right out of the gate, guided by the Holy Spirit, was not the experience but what the experience with the Spirit of God brought about in them, in their desire to know God, in their desire to know the plan of God as it related to who Jesus is, to to know what it meant to live the true life as he had designed it. Something was activated in them. And it's centered around knowing God through all that he had spoken, through the prophets, through priests, through kings, through, through Jesus, and now continuing in the apostles. So how important was this to the first century church and, and the church culture they were building? It was primary. So as I walked through that a little bit, I I thought, well, okay, to the people, so what about the leaders? How important was this to the first century church leaders, to the church culture that they were being asked by God to be a part of building? I believe we see that as we we see the first challenge to the importance of God's word and and in a couple of the primary leaders. The, The challenge we see is in Acts 6. The church was expanding at a rate that would make church growth gurus salivate. And and what they would want to do is they would want to go and interview a bunch of people and then they would want to figure out how to market that, right? It's amazing. God doesn't need marketing. 
But with that came difficulty, specifically with practical things like distribution of food. We talked about how many people there were and all the in-gathering, all the fellowship that was taking place. There was a lot going on in that moment of time. And, and what came up was whether or not certain widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of that food and, and which part, uh, which was part of the church culture, right, as we, as we talked about it, how they shared their meals together, how they provided for one another, those things. So a good thing became logistically difficult. The solution was, hey, let's give it to the leaders and let them figure it out, right? That happens sometimes. But the leaders understood that their priority was not food distribution. Not that it wasn't important, you know? Fish got to swim, birds got to eat, that kind of thing. But there was something far more vital to the success and, and the life of this church culture. Here's how they responded. Acts 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said... It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The priority is clear. The word of God being proclaimed is of first priority to this church leadership. I wonder if that could be said today in the majority of churches that are in our area or in our state or in the nation or maybe even in the world. But look at what happened next. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. People who were hungry for the word of God and the teachings of the apostles and the understanding of how the Old Testament now filters through who Jesus is, what life is supposed to be, how they are supposed to be living, that statement found approval with them. I wonder if it would be the same response in the church today if some of the programs were not deemed as important by church leadership as proclaiming the word of God and prayer. So then, verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip and all those other names you can't pronounce. And, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. I wonder if there are enough people, and in this context, men specifically, who could be described like this, in most churches today, willing to do the work necessary to keep the distraction from impeding the true spiritual focus of what we understand to be the elder ministry in the body of Christ. As I thought about that for a second, I'm really glad that we have what we have in the deacons that serve this body and they function really, really well. But I want you to listen to the outcome in verse 7. So after all of that, right, they refocus, they make sure everything's right. This is what it says. The word of God 
the word of God, not the distribution of food, the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were even becoming obedient to the faith. I truly believe that what we have just read is what is prescribed for church culture. It wasn't just an Acts 1 and 2 thing. It was the beginning of church culture. It was where the church needs to focus its attention because everything about the Word of God is life. And it's a pattern to be followed. Those who are entrusted with the responsibility of the Word of God to be the servants of God's people, to to bring them before God with their needs, to, to bring them to the knowledge of God through His Word by His Spirit, must see this as a priority in the Lord's church. We can never stop doing that. I have been really disheartened over the last several years because of the way things have been in my mind and how things have been and and the classes that have been stopped and the things that we've had to alter and all of those things. It's been disheartening to me in some degree. And, And then I start hearing of this group of believers in the church that are getting together and doing Bible study and these two or three men over here that are getting together. In spite of all that, there's a desire within this body of believers to study the word of God and they're going to keep doing it which is wonderful, and we need to make sure that our priority, even as leaders, is to make sure that continues to happen at a deep level. So when all of the distractions challenged that and challenged that in the church culture in Acts, it was met with greater devotion to the truth and to the proclamation of the Word of God and to the study of Scripture than to the lessening of it. I think that's a detriment in church culture today. In many church cultures, the word of God is not the priority. Everything else is. But nowhere was it truer to the leadership of the church than it was in the Apostle Paul. More more scriptures written about this by him than really anyone else. In fact, just reading what he wrote about it shows just how mandatory it was to him. 1 Timothy 2.2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 1 Timothy 4.6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be good servants of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. 1 Timothy 4.11, he continues, prescribe and teach these things. Verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and, and to your teaching. Preserve, uh, persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourselves and for those who hear you. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the presence and, and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And then he told Titus this, an elder, one who leads in the Lord's church, as we were just talking, an elder must be one who holds fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. 
that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. What becomes clear is that the, in, the intended for the word of God was that it would be the central focus of the leaders of the Lord's church. Quick reference from Peter where, where he focused on the growth. Wow, this is bad. He focused on the growth of the believers and how they, they would find their nourishment in faith. First Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So how important was this idea of the word of God being the central focus to the leaders that were helping to develop the church culture of the first century? It was primary to the people. It was mandatory to the leaders. So if this focus on the word of God, the teaching of Jesus was primary after the experience of Pentecost and, and the focus of the word of God, the teaching of Jesus was mandatory in the thinking of the leaders of the church who were helping establish the church culture and in view of their mission and the future of the church. How important should it be to us today as Hope Chapel, an expression of the church of Jesus Christ in this community? And the way we understand this question and the way we answer this question will truly define our church culture because it will determine how we think. I was talking with my sister-in-law, by the way, who's visiting us. Welcome, Lynn. Um, and we were talking about this a, a, a long while back, I think back maybe when we were younger. Um, how you think is where it all starts, right? How you think is how you will live. But it's important because how we think and, and what we think about in this culture, it, it will determine what we will believe as to who we are and how we are to be in this culture. It will determine what we live and how we live in this culture and in the culture that surrounds us. And I know some of this seems a little bit elementary to even be talking about. But it's really, especially from the many different places we get our input today, all the, the ease of influence in our lives, how to think, who to be, how to be, what to live. The, the sheer volume that we have of those many inputs, those many influences, how many hours of TV, how many hours of surfing the web, how many hours of listening to music, billboards, commercials, books, conversations overheard are influencing our lives every day and all with the same agenda. And that agenda is not to cause us to know God, to enjoy the life that he has designed and desires for us. So I think it is important to answer a few questions as we solidify this particular piece and remind ourselves together of what our church culture is and what it continues to be. It's necessary. According to what we know from the scripture and what we've seen in church history, 
up to the modern day, I just want us to answer a couple of questions. Is it possible to establish and maintain a Christian culture without being people who actively deepen their knowledge of God, their knowledge of Jesus, from his words? Is it possible to maintain that culture? I would answer that no. A reminder from Scripture, Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Same prophet that was writing to the people that I was talking about this morning when I started telling them you're not listening to his word anymore. The second question is this, is it possible to establish and maintain a Christian culture with people who conduct themselves rightly in this world without being people who know and understand what God, what Jesus has said regarding all human interaction? I would answer that question, no. It's not possible. And we have a little reminder from Scripture from Micah 6, 8, one of my life verses that I just love. With, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good. He has told you. Where did he tell you? How did he tell you? Wrote it down a few times. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? He has told us. And if we don't continually reference back to what he has told us, we will forget. The third question is this. Is it possible to establish and maintain a Christian culture with people who love God fully and love Jesus fully without being people who engage their minds in the growth of their relationship with him? See, experience then becomes an emotional attachment, right? Sometimes we even forget all the facts of the experience, but we remember the experience and there becomes an emotional attachment to it that when we hear a certain song, we start to cry. When we hear a certain song, we want to clap our hands. We hear a certain song, we want to raise our hands. Somebody says something and it reminds us of something and then all of a sudden, but we're not even engaging our minds Matthew 22, and he said to him, as Jesus is answering this question, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. What does it look like to have, can you have a Christian culture that doesn't engage their loving of God, 
with their mind. How do we do that? He's told us. He's given it to us. It's vital to us. The last one is this. Is it possible to establish and maintain a Christian culture with people who experience the life of God, experience life in Jesus, without its people becoming ever-learning students of the Word of God? Back to an Old Testament prophet, Hosea. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and deception and murder and stealing and adultery. Was Hosea written in 2022? George, do you remember the date on that? They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. We've got city leaders that don't know where this is all coming from. They stand in front of microphones and blame everybody for everything. We know exactly where it comes from. It comes from the evil intent of a wicked heart. Scripture's clear. Therefore, the land mourns. Have you heard some of that recently as you've listened to people talking about this? How they mourn for the loss of young life in St. Louis and Chicago and Washington, D.C. and San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York and, Right? There's a grief, there's a, there's a mourning. <laughs> and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. Yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day and the prophets also will stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, some people will take that verse and they'll say lack of knowledge of whatever. And I mean, I'm sure you could do an internet search and find 50 different things that they'll tell you about that. But if you look at the context, the context is the lack of the knowledge of God. There's no other context in these verses other than the lack of the knowledge of God. So why is this so important to remind us as we are beginning to make a transition and be given new opportunities? It's because we're people of the word, right? I I believe it's important because though we have access to the word of God in more ways today than ever before, if we are not diligent, we will believe we are more people of the word than we really are. We will believe that the word of God is a priority and that it it should be mandatory for those who lead the Lord's church and and yet it will not change our thinking, our beliefs, or our actions in the culture in which we live here and as a result it will not change in the culture we live there. Remember what we said about church culture in the very beginning of this series and how we saw the church culture of Ephesus go from being praiseworthy in some degree to questionable in its priority of who and what mattered most. 
So what does that mean for us? I'm going to ask Ross to come on back and we're going to conclude this morning. What does that mean for us? I believe it means asking the question personally, am I continually devoting my life to the word of God? I can't answer that for you. You can't answer that for me, but I can answer it honestly before God. Am I continually devoting my life to the word of God? Is the word of God my primary influencer? And then we as a church, are we continually devoting ourselves together to the word of God? Because whatever we experience as individuals, whatever we experience as a church culture must be rooted and grounded in the word of God or else we will be wackadoodle. It's not Hebrew and Greek. I think it might be Aramaic. But we will be wackadoodle like the rest of church culture. We will stand for nothing that can transform lives. We will offer a gospel that is hopeless because we're not changed by it. And I say this because as we face the days ahead toward the coming of the Lord, the mind clutter is going to increase. The, The noise of the world is going to get louder and louder and stronger and stronger. And we will need his word to be our anchor. I read this recently and I thought it was really, really good. So I quoted part of it and then changed some of the words. Just just kidding. And what is it, this author asks, that enables the believer to to stand the test, to face the challenge? Miracles? Signs, wonders, dramatic claims? No. A solid, experiential grasp of the Word of God. So, as we consider this today, I would ask you to consider where you are in your devotion to the Word of God. And and notice, I'm not doing that because we're starting a new Bible study tomorrow and we're trying to sign people up. Now, I'm sure we will be starting new Bible studies and we will be doing biblical education and all of those things as we move forward. This is foundational. Where are you in your devotion to the study of the Word of God and to the part it plays in your living life in this world? being part of the church culture that he's called us to. It was primary in the first century to the believers. It was mandatory to the leaders. Is it primary to us as believers? And is it and will it be mandatory to our leadership? I can say this for the guys that are leading right now, that it's their watch. It's primary to them primary to them and it's primary to me so as long as we're alive
going to continue to be primary because it is our anchor, his truth. Let's stand together as Ross leads us as we conclude. Ross.